Good afternoon and welcome to this session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals at Wake Forest Law School. We uh, would like to thank Dean Klein, Professor Corzon, and uh, Professor uh, Laura Graham for helping make this opportunity possible. We have two cases on the docket today. We will take a brief pause after the first and we would ask counsel if they would just stay a few minutes in case there are questions that uh, we would like to give the students an opportunity to pose any questions they may have. Um, I'd like to introduce the court. To my right is Judge Allegra Collins. To my left is Judge April Wood. My name is John Tyson, and this will be your panel for this afternoon. So, are there any preliminary matters to come before the court before we get started? Okay, well then we will hear from, uh, call the case of State versus Peacock, and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is David Hallen. I'm an assistant appellate defender at the Office of the Appellate Defender, and I'm representing Mr. Peacock here on appeal. I would like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. Police officers in the state of North Carolina are required, must wait for a search warrant prior to executing said warrant. The officers in this case failed to do so. They broke into a residence, beat the man they found inside, and charged him with resisting a public officer for cowering in his bed with his hands up and by his head in response to their unlawful presence. The record demonstrates that a warrant did not exist when officers searched the house. The state concedes that a search without a warrant would have been unlawful. Over 50 years of precedent supports the concept, and this is to quote State v. Sparrow, our North Carolina Supreme Court, one who resists an illegal entry is not resisting an officer in the discharge of the duties of his office. This principle has been applied in cases where defendant physically attacked officers, like State v. Sparrow, in cases where officers were told to unlawfully enter a home by a superior, like State v. Houston, and cases where a defendant fled questioning officers, like in State, State v. Sinclair. It should not be overruled here. Over the next 25 minutes, I'd like to discuss the numerous ways that the trial court went against the precedent of this court and the precedent of the North Carolina Supreme Court. I'd first like to discuss how the trial court erred in denying Mr. Peacock's motion to dismiss. And then I would like to discuss three aspects of the jury instructions. Specifically, trial court's error in reinterpreting element three of the resisting an officer statute. The trial court's error in explaining this element and its re their reinterpretation to the jury, and the trial court's failure to the trial court's failure to uh, instruct the jury on Mr. Peacock's right to resist, despite a note from the jury requesting said instruction. I'd like to ask a question about the search warrant, and you said that there was uh, was there evidence that it hadn't been issued. Was there any evidence that it had been issued such that it was a jury question, or, or do we even have enough evidence before the trial court with the exclusion of that warrant to determine that? In other words, should this go back for a new trial? 
Well, Your Honor, I would say that the record does not in any way support the claim that there was a warrant at the time. Um, what we know from the warrant that was on record page 13, both the magistrate and the detective who received the warrant separately wrote that the warrant was received at 2.15 p.m. on January 29, 2020. The citation that lists uh, Mr. Peacock's charge was over an hour prior to that time. Um, the state has the burden of proof to show that the officers were acting lawfully. The state would have had to present evidence that there was a clerical error or some other error in the warrant, um, and no such evidence was presented. Can you um, review this, this court standard of review on the two issues that you bring before us? We have a dismissal motion, correct? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, so for the motion to dismiss, uh, that standard is de novo, um, which means to renew uh, or review in a new light. And the standard of that in terms of the facts or the evidence is in the light most favorable to the state. For both of the jury, um, for two of the jury instructions, um, the first one regarding the failure, to, uh, regarding the new test and regarding the failure to explain the new test, both of those were preserved, which means that uh, both of those jury instructions uh, would also be reviewed de novo. For the third jury instruction, the failure to explain that Mr. Peacock had a right to resist, that was not preserved, um, which means that the, the standard would have been plain error, um, that, which means not only error, but absence said error, the jury would have reached a different verdict. And you would have the burden to show that? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. Yes, Thank sir. you. We have a lot of case law um, that where a search warrant is invalid, we still do not suppress that evidence if there's a, a good faith or reasonable understanding that there is a valid search warrant. Why is this case different from all of that precedent? Sure, Your Honor. Um, I would say that the reason that, that this case is different from all of that precedent is that precedent applies in the situation of a motion to suppress. So whether we should suppress certain evidence or not. Here what we're looking at is element three of the uh, resisting a public officer statute. And that element reads that the victim was discharging or attempting to discharge a duty of his office. And what they mean by victim here is the officer. Um, the, this third element of the offense also presupposes lawful conduct of the officer in discharging or attempting to discharge said duty. So what we're really looking at here is whether the officers were acting lawfully in discharging or attempting to discharge duty, not uh, any other, uh, the other um, standard. So the state relies very heavily on State v. Wright, and part of the basis for that is because the officers who were executing the search warrant at issue here were supposedly told by the sergeant on shift that they actually had a valid warrant. So how would you respond to the state's contention regarding the fact that the officers were acting in good faith? Well, I would like to uh, bring up two different um, aspects in terms of that. The first, in discussing State v. Wright, um, as, as you correctly pointed out, um, the state cited State v. Wright in saying, a person may not resist an officer acting under authority of court process, which is sufficient on its face to show its purpose, even though the process may be defective or irregular in some respects. However, that assertion was taken out of context. The sentence before the state citation, in the same exact paragraph, reads, when an officer attempts to make an arrest without a warrant and in doing so exceeds his lawful authority, he may be resisted as in self-defense, and in such case the person resisting cannot be convicted under GS 14-223 of the offense of resisting an officer engaged in a discharge of his duties. So I would say that under State v. Wright, Mr. Peacock did have a right to resist. 
And the second aspect I would bring up here is uh, State v. Carter. And in State v. Carter, the defendant was charged with resisting arrest after he, um, I mean, I, my apologies, uh, State v. Houston, State v. Houston. And in State v. Houston, an officer entered a house without a warrant after a defendant locked himself inside and refused to come out. A valid order for arrest existed at the sheriff's office, and the officers on scene consulted with the superior prior to breaking into the residence. This court ruled that defendant's motion to dismiss should have been granted due to the officer's unlawful action of entering the house without an order for arrest. And that brings me into my point of uh, why the motion to dismiss should have been granted. As we read in Houston, the, um, the officers were acting on orders for a superior, but there was a clear difference. In Houston, there was a order for arrest. The order for arrest was valid. It just wasn't present on scene. In the present case, there was no warrant at all. The state conceded in its brief that if the officers had entered without a warrant, the entry would have been unlawful. The warrant was issued multiple hours the, uh, after the search in charge of resisting arrest. As such, there was no warrant, the entry was unlawful, and the trial court erred in denying Mr. Peacock's motion to dismiss. So there was no charges pending against your client at the time the officers went into the just um, a search warrant? None, none in the record, Your Honor, none that I am aware of. Um, the search war, um, warrant, uh, when it was issued later, was targeting Mr. Peacock's roommate, uh, not Mr. Peacock himself. Continuing onwards into the jury instructions, um, beginning with the first, uh, my first issue here. So what would you have the court do as it relates to the first issue? Um, I would have the court overturn a conviction. In effect, give a new trial? Um, yes, Your Honor. Okay. So as to the first of my uh, jury instruction um, issues, First, the trial court erred by substituting the pattern jury instruction in this case for element um, three of the resisting an officer statute for a new test unfounded in any precedent. Whether the officer had a reasonable objective belief that he was discharging an official duty. A reasonable objective test not only goes against 50 years of precedent, but it also changes the test from an objective analysis of the officer's lawful conduct and discharging duty to a subjective analysis of the officer's mind and the inner state of the officer's mind. This rule has to apply in all situations, which means that overruling precedent and switching to such a reasonable test would functionally force individuals facing unlawful police action to become mind readers. Instead of relying on objective knowledge of the law, a civilian would have to complete the impossible task of knowing what's going, inside an op going on inside an officer's head in determining whether they have a right to resist. That moves me into my second um, of the jury instruction issues, um, which is even if the trial court's reasonable test had been consistent with precedent, officers in the present case were still not acting reasonably. The state legislature has outlined the requirements for reasonableness under 15A-252, um, reasonableness in 15A-252. If the officers had attempted to comply with the statute at any point during their search, they would have recognized that they did not have a warrant. Either officers knew that they didn't have a warrant, making their conduct unlawful under either test, or they made an active choice not to follow the procedures set out for them under 15A-252, also making their conduct unlawful under either test. If the trial court decided to establish a reasonable objective standard, the jury should have been informed or have been provided with information regarding what the reasonable objective standard is. And 15A-252 provides that standard. 
from the legislature. Finally, I would like to move on to my third, uh, third topic within the jury instruction block. The trial court erring by failing to include Mr. Peacock's right to resist arrest in the jury instructions. This aspect is especially important given the note that the jurors sent back to the trial court regarding their confusion. And to read that note, quote, is the fact that the search warrant was issued after the search was conducted, how does that affect the charge of resisting? Can the defendant be charged with resisting if the actions of the officers was not sanctioned by the court? The state Supreme Court, uh, North Carolina Supreme Court, spoke directly to this note and, and, and fundamentally answered the juror's question. In State v. Sparrow, they said, and I quote, the court's instructions regarding the crucial question, whether the entry by the officers was leg legal, I, I apologize, the court's instructions ignored the crucial question, whether the entry by the officers was legal or illegal. The jury should have been instructed as to the rights of the defendant if the entry was illegal. Error in this respect was prejudicial and sufficient to entitle defendant to a new trial. As established by the time that the warrant was issued in comparison to the time of the search and when Mr. Pe the citation against Mr. Peacock was issued, the entry by the officers was illegal. As such, the jury should have been instructed on Mr. Peacock's right to resist. The jury instinctively knew the problem of the state's case. They asked about it specifically in one of their notes. The state Supreme Court provided an answer to that, but the trial court refused to provide that answer to the jury. As such, on this point, Mr. Peacock should have a new trial. Can we go back to the remedy here? We were talking about whether there was sufficient evidence uh, here of these five elements, and you pointed to specifically one of the elements that was missing, correct? Right. Would the remedy then be a new trial, or is it simply dismissal of the case against defendant? Um, I would say that I, I misspoke for earlier. It would be a dismissal of the case against the defendant. You also briefed an issue on the trial court's denial of your attempt to introduce an exhibit, a certified exhibit of the uh, search warrant. Do you want to address that briefly? Um, if Your Honor, Honor would like, I would love to address that briefly. Um, I would say that I think regardless of whether or not the warrant was introduced and regardless of that issue, I think that the remaining issues, that of the motion to dismiss and the jury instruction, are far more essential to the case and um, are, are the full extent of what is necessary here. So there was testimony of the time the officers entered the residence, and there was testimony of when the search warrant was issued. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. So the jury was allowed to hear both? Yes, Your Honor. So this would have just been a cooperation of that testimony? To an extent, Your Honor, I, I think that there's also an aspect where the judge's denial of allowing the search warrant into evidence lowered the value of that, that search warrant and of that component in the jurors' minds. You know, it, to the extent that the warrant was an essential part of this case, um, the jury should have been able to see it and should have been front and center. Instead, the judge decided to remove that from evidence, not allow that into evidence, and such devalued it in the minds of the juror. So that would be that would be within the judge's discretion on whether or not to allow that testimony or that exhibit? Well, it would have been in, within the judge's discre uh, discretion. The, uh, the plain reading of Rule 902 states that certified copies of documents contained in the public record are self-authenticated. This was such a document. By a plain reading of 902, the judge should have allowed the warrant in. 
there any difference, would there be any difference in this case if there had never been a warrant issued versus the fact that it was issued an hour later? Isn't this just an invalid procedure, just sort of a hiccup and not really something that, uh, that we should reverse this conviction for? Well, I would say that, I would say that it's not just an invalid procedure. You know, the officers here have a requirement to wait for a search warrant. You know, without a search warrant, the resident inside has no way of knowing what's going on. There's no way of knowing that uh, why the officers are searching. The officers have no idea what they're searching for. Um, you know, in, in a, to some extent, they're going in blind. The law very clearly states that in order to act lawfully, the officers need a search warrant. They didn't have one here. Are there exceptions to that, and do any of them apply here? Um, there are exceptions to that. Uh, none of them apply here. Uh, there were no accident circumstances. Um, the burglary, uh, burglary, my apologies, took place earlier that morning, and there was no belief or anything stated in the uh, warrant that was issued later to say that there would have been accident circumstances. Um, and there was no consent here either. Well, the state actually brings up the issue of consent and says, well, we had consent because the roommate the night prior had actually consented to the search of the residence. So how do you respond to that contention? That e on either ground, the state believes that this should be affirmed. Well, I, I believe that the consent is uh, um, the consent that was given the night before is a non-issue here. The consent was given um, in relation to a completely different incident um, at a completely different time. If the consent was to apply here, then giving officers consent to enter a home at one time would mean that functionally, indefinitely after that, officers could just walk in whenever. Well, is, does it matter that the consent was given the night before and less than 24 hours later, the officers are then searching the residence, which was consented to be searched? I would say in this case, no. The, um, the incident was entirely different. Uh, there was the, the incident at the time, we don't know a, a whole a lot about the information, but we, um, I, I apologize, about the incident. But we do know that it's related to the roommate potentially being involved in some sort of assault claim against an unknown victim. Um, the roommate, for that circumstance, gave the opportunity to search. The officers chose not to come in and search. This was re related to a completely different charge against said roommate. Um, so I would say that these have no, nothing. These consents have nothing to do with one another. So basically, the the charge that your client was convicted of. Um, you're arguing that the illegal entry would have been a defense to those charges, correct? Uh, could you restate that question? My apologies, Your Honor. Your client was convicted of uh, resisting a public officer during the execution of a search warrant, yes, right? So, but for the illegal warrant, there's no basis for your client to be charged at all. Is that correct? Uh, yes, sir. And there's nothing to support the conviction? Uh, there's nothing to support the conviction, no, Your Honor. So... Going back to Judge uh, Collins' question, how, do you, how can we separate the precedent that allows a search even without a warrant being issued? Well, Your Honor, I would say that um, under the present circumstances, we have extensive case law that points to this very situation. And it says that in specifically a case of resisting a public officer, the officers need to be acting lawfully. Um, you know, here, one, the warrant was not issued at the time. There was no warrant. Two, there was no accident circumstances. Three, no consent. So would you, would you assert that your client, there was no suspicion or no basis for any charges against your client until this occurred? Uh, yes, Your Honor. So and, th um, there was no reason for them to suspect your client of anything? 
no, Your Honor. There was, there was never any reason to suspect my client of anything in this uh, situation. Um, as I stated before, the charge um, or the, the focus of the search was on Mr. Peacock's roommate, not Mr. Peacock. And it was based on fingerprints found on a honeypot and a jar of tomato paste uh, in the neighbor's residence after the alleged burglary. So under 252, before undertaking any search or seizure, the officer must read the warrant and give a copy of the warrant application and affidavit to the person to be searched. Is there any evidence that that happened either with Mr. Peacock or with the person named in the subsequently issued search warrant? Um, there is no evidence of such. Um, the entire trip search took place without any of these steps, taking, um, steps being carried out, and uh, Deputy Staggs testified that he himself did not carry out any of these steps, and he wasn't sure if anybody had. So there's no evidence the, the, the warrant was ever served? At, at least up until the point of end of search, um, I, there is no evidence of such. Okay. So even if it had been issued, 252, would you argue, had been violated because it was never read? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I would, I would um, argue as such. Um, we know that under State v. Carter, a sub substantial violation of 252 leads to the officers acting unlawfully. Uh, here, there was a total violation of 252. And therefore, you know, we move beyond the level of Carter to a degree of unlawfulness, um, or yes, to, to unlawfulness. Okay, you have about five minutes left. Perfect. Would you like to reserve the remainder of your time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. All right, thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Hear from the state. Good afternoon, and may I please the court. My name is Daniel Kovas. I am Special Deputy Attorney General with the North Carolina Department of Justice, uh, representing the state in this case. Um, so as we've already been uh, hearing about for the last uh, 25 minutes or so, this is a case where a uh, defendant has brought up an issue of a warrant in an unrelated case uh, involving the defendant where he was uh, charged with a crime incident to the uh, search. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the validity of the search warrant in this case. Uh, the state argues that this is a collateral issue, that the warrant uh, really is not um, the basis of the charges in this case. And what the focus should be on is on the crime itself that was charged, which is the resisting of a public officer. Um, now, the, defe Go ahead. <laughs> the defendant was in his residence, in his bed, when the officers broke down his door allegedly executing a search warrant, uh, doesn't he have a Fourth Amendment right against the unlawful search and seizure? So there would be some argument perhaps for some uh, levels of privacy in this case. However, would this be the highest level of privacy? Uh, I'm not so sure that would be the highest level of, pri of privacy. In your own home, in your own bed? Well, I think there's some question as far as who the, home the homeowner is in this case. Um, as it, does it matter? Is there, any dis is there any disagreement this is the defendant's residence? Um, there is some disagreement that this was the defendant's residence, as there was a homeowner which, uh, even according to the warrant itself, it stated that the officers, including one of the officers who was present on the um, 
the entry team that morning or the following morning who spoke with the homeowner the night before and gained consent for a search. The homeowner would have already been in a superior position to be able to give consent to uh, a search and also was not present at the residence at the time. Another issue, and I, I, I'm not sure if this was getting to your uh, question, Judge Wood, but I think that, um, and I can pause for a moment to allow you to, to ask. No, okay. go ahead. <laughs> so, I, I don't want to be a mind reader, but um, I think that um, there is some issue as well as far as the timing and the ability for the officers to be able to uh, even present the defendant in this case with a warrant. Uh, the facts that were presented in the trial were that the defend the uh, the officers uh, performed a, a proper uh, knock and announce three times, announced that they were present. The defendant in the case even admitted that he heard the knock and announce, but yet did not come to the door. As such, the officers had no reason to believe that there was anybody in the home or any ability to be able to perceive that anybody was in the home. And so they did uh, execute a search of the home, breached the door, and then happened to find the defendant in his room at the time that uh, they happened upon him in conducting the search. Is the, is the timing difficulty you're referring to the fact that the warrant hadn't been issued? when all of this happened? No, Your Honor, that's not what I'm uh, alluding to. What I'm alluding to is the timing in which the uh, defendant did not come to the door despite having a proper knock and announce that was conducted by the officers conducting the search. Is there a proper knock and announce when you don't have a warrant? Uh, when there's not a warrant, then there would not necessarily be a, a um, it, it would depend on the circumstances, I believe. So in this case? In this case, there should have been a warrant, and actually there's conflicting evidence, which I think the Defendant's counsel has uh, alluded to that there may have been some confusion there, but the, really there's conflicting evidence that was presented at trial. The officers all testified that they were aware that there had been a search warrant that was issued from their superior officer. Um, but that was, was not based on their own knowledge. That was based on what they had been told. Is that correct? Correct. That is correct, Your Honor. Um, I would also point to the warrant itself where there does seem to be a little bit of uh, language in the, the warrant that would suggest that there may have been perhaps, one, there's, there are a couple issues. One, there is the issue of the time that was actually written onto the warrant, which is unusual in this case and it's a little hard to explain other than it may have been some sort of mistake or clerical error. Um, but Just but there was no proof of that. <laughs> <laughs> was there any oh, evidence in the file that there was a mistake or clerical error? There was no evidence presented on either side at trial. Um, there's uh, actually no evidence other than that there happens to be some sort of discrepancy between the time that's written on the warrant and then also the time that is written on the citation as well as the time of the actual search. Well, the warrant on page 13 of the record shows that it was issued at 2.15 p.m. And, and executed at two four minutes later. Yes, Your Honor. And I... Again, it's, it's unusual circumstances. I can't really explain that, and it wasn't presented at trial as far as that. There were no questions posed by either side as far as what this, this issue is. On but one of the issues is the, the trial judge's refusal to allow the jury to see it. Yes, Your Honor. I mean, to me, an average juror said, okay, you, you got it 2.15 and you executed it four minutes later. How close was the defendant's house to the courthouse? Uh, Your Honor, I, I wouldn't even be able to uh, map that out with MapQuest or... Is, Sorry, this the, is it the state's burden to show that there was an, uh, a valid search warrant issued prior to the search? Well, I would argue that it's not in this case because it's really not the issue or of the crime itself. But it's also, an element of the crime, correct? That there was that, that it was a lawful duty being discharged. So 
there are a few other duties that I think are in play here, and one of those is actually the duty which I was going to come to in my points, is that there is a duty for other officers to protect other officers who are acting in the line of duty. So, and this is a safety issue. Um, what was in the What was in the indictment? The indictment has said um, the execution of a search warrant. Okay. So, aren't we bound by that? Uh, we are bound by that. I would say, though, that there is conflicting evidence as far as whether or not there was a valid search warrant at the time, and the state wouldn't concede that there was no search warrant either. So, couldn't this just be the case where the sergeant? knew that someone was going down to the courthouse to get a judge to issue a search warrant, told the officers to go ahead and didn't wait for the search warrant and didn't have it in their hand. As a, as a longtime trial judge, it was my practice to write the time that I actually issued the search warrant. And it may be 45 minutes to an hour before I can get to the officer waiting there if I'm in the middle of, of court. And so isn't that one of the reasons why uh, the officers are supposed to wait till they have it in hand to execute it? Your Honor, I, I would say that that is definitely a possibility. Unfortunately, there was no evidence presented at trial one way or the other. Um, what we do know is that on the actual warrant itself within the affidavit, and I believe it's on page uh, 14, 15. I, I thought it was page 18, actually, where it said that uh, Detective Corey Payne, and it was eventually found, I apologize, um, I believe it's page, sorry, page four of six, I think, that the, um, there was perhaps a discrepancy in the uh, location of the residence to be searched. And so it, this is just evidence uh, that I would point to as far as that there may have been some sort of discrepancy as far as the warrant, and this might have been either the judge perhaps reissuing a warrant um, with the correct information, the correct address, or it may not have. It's hard to say. We just don't know. Um, it's unusual circumstances. What is still more in play here is the fact that of the conduct of the, the defendant in this case, uh, which is that um, he did, uh, in violation of 15A252, uh, did, um, uh, I apologize, uh, it, not, that he, he did, um, resist a public officer uh, in this case. So 252 is the failure to read the search warrant. I apologize, that was, I, I misstated. Um, so, but the, the fact of the matter is that in the course of conducting duty, um, the officer's duty of executing a search warrant, which again, conflicting evidence, but as they understood it and they had reasonable uh, understanding that there was a search warrant from their superior officers and acting under uh, orders, did execute the search and happened upon the defendant who did not uh, respond to a knock and announce. And so when they happened upon him by surprise, it raised a safety issue for the other officers. The defendant continued not to comply with any of the requests of the officers, and they had to uh, place him into a, um, uh, had to restrain him in order to um, secure them as well as secure the, the area as well. Um, again, this would be under State be right um, that the officers do have that the Supreme Court recognizes that the importance of uh, protecting officers while acting within their duty um, is uh, uh, d even even despite any sort of defect in a warrant um, is of the utmost importance. And in the Fourth Amendment says, uh, particularly describing the persons or places to be searched and the items to be seized. 
So, and the Fourth Amendment also outlaws general warrants, which go in and look around. So how can you have a warrant that particularly describes the persons to be searched and items to be seized if you don't have a warrant? Uh, again, Your Honor, I can't say that they didn't have a warrant based on the facts and what we weren't presented with at trial. There were no, um, again, this is a, a warrant in a collateral case. Would a homeowner say, okay, what are you here for? What are you looking for? Do, uh, would a homeowner have that right? Uh, so, again, we would go back to the other issue that I think was raised before, that there was also some consent that was given by the homeowner the night before. Um, there was no evidence as far as, you know, any of the scope being limited as far as time, So place. how long does the consent last then? Considering it was given the night before, the homeowner says, yeah, you can search my residence. The officers do not choose to search his residence. And then at, after 2 o'clock the next day decide, ah, well, now we want to go search his residence. Doesn't that seem like that's untimely? Uh, it might at first blush. However, I think if you look at the statutes, it does depend on what the scope is given by the homeowner or the one who gives the consent. In this case, the homeowner gave the consent to the officers to be able to conduct a search. Even though he wasn't home at the time. So he wasn't there to actually consent when the officers showed up. Isn't that right? Correct, which is why they probably went back and got a warrant. And so as, again, as the testimony said or shows in this case, the officers understood that there was a warrant. It was their understanding. They were acting within the scope of their duty and did so. Do you concede that the warrant itself says it wasn't issued until 2.15 and that the search occurred prior to that? I, I would concede that it says on that warrant that the time was uh, issued after the citation. However, it, we don't know if there was another warrant before or after. It, it's, it wasn't presented in this case. This is also a, a warrant for, a, again, a collateral matter on a Mr. Kovas, uh, were the officers in uniform? Yes, Your Honor. Both of them? Uh, actually, it was six to eight officers, I believe, uh, according to the testimony, and all of them were wearing uniforms, uh, all stating sheriff on the back, as well as the uh, standard uh, issue fatigue or uh, uniforms. Do, um, when you're trying to draw the line between what conduct was reasonable and you put yourself in the position, I think, if it's a state burden, we would have to look at it in the light most favorable to the defendant, the absence of warrant. Do you agree with that? Um, well, the state has the burden to show the basis for no warrant. The state would have a burden to show, or, or to meet a burden of, uh, the, the state would have to meet that burden of proof that they had a right to be there. But at, again, the burden, I would argue that the state did meet the burden based on the testimony that we had, that they did understand that there was a warrant from the superior officer, which a copy of the warrant was left at the residence after the search because no one was home for them to be able to be presented to, as well as the homeowner, especially. Um, and so, so, so if, if an officer understands that a warrant has been issued, and unlike this case, a warrant is never issued, is that, is that still going to be a I, would you still advocate that his reasonable belief allowed him to do the search that he did? Your Honor, I think it would depend on the circumstances of the case. The state, it's the exact same circumstances, our case right here, but a warrant was never issued. In that case where there was a warrant never issued, I would say that there is probably some argument that there, um, that yes, they, they probably should not have been there or they would not have been able to uh, search the home. Why is that different? If your argument here is based on the reasonable belief because he was told they had a warrant. Sorry, I think I misunderstood. It, if we're arguing, if we're discussing the reasonable belief element, and the reasonable belief here is that the officers uh, 
understood that there was a warrant and they should uh, conduct a search, then I would argue that, yes, there, there is no difference in this case from that, that scenario. So aren't we setting up a system where all you do is tell uh, someone, go search that house and trust me, I have a warrant and it doesn't matter? Um, Your Honor, I think I would probably answer that with a, a potential hypothetical, if I may, um, which is that so it, every day that there are, uh, there are traffic stops, uh, particularly for, say, a DWI, if an officer sees another individual who is perhaps swerving or, um, you know, maybe crossing over the line a little bit, and then they pull them over, and then the individual either resists the arrest or resists uh, the uh, officer detaining them, either by speeding off or not showing a license or, or anything that would uh, unreasonably delay the, the stop there, um, only to find out that there's some sort of issue as far as a reasonable, um, uh, reasonable belief or probable uh, cause for the traffic stop later on because of some technicality. I think we're talking about a slippery slope that could be created in that sort of scenario where if we're not allowing some deference for the officers to be able to act within their duty, especially if they are under orders in conducting what would normally be a part of their job. Um, but haven't you just described a situation where there's uh, reasonable articulable suspicion that, that something happened versus a gentleman in his bed with his hands up? Well, I think there's some discrepancy perhaps as far as whether or not his hands were up. I think okay, as far so as he's in his bed. He's in his bed hiding underneath the sheets, I think was part of the testimony and the evidence in this case. So, in From eight officers coming in without a warrant. In, in, at that moment, Your Honor, there were two officers in the room, and their understanding and belief was that they did have a warrant, and they were acting under orders to do so and executing it. And they, aren't residences different than vehicles? I mean... Basically, there are a lot more exceptions on a vehicle, which you, the Supreme Court in Ohio says you can move a vehicle. It's hard to move a house. So I guess more latitude are given to officers in searches with vehicles than it would be when they're going into a residence. Uh, arguably, yes, there would be more deference for an officer searching a vehicle as you know, compared to a home. Um, again, this is a home that doesn't belong to this individual, and so as far as his privacy rights are concerned, I think there's a little... It's a little uncertain as far as how much right he has compared to the homeowner who, does, who did give consent. We've had cases where uh, guests are in homes, where there's actually a guest in a home. We've had cases of motel rooms. So, I mean, the law, we have precedents that, that look at each one of those. I mean, I don't want to de degrade his status. You know, if he was there as a guest, if he was there as a tenant, whatever his status was, he was there in a personal residence, in a bedroom. So can you can you tell us why that wouldn't be what would be deserving of the highest protection and the requirement of the warrant, as opposed to some of these commercial or vehicle scenarios where we give the highest degree of protection to a personal residence, and particularly to a bedroom? So your Honor, I, I think, again, I have to go back to the consent that was given by the homeowner the night before, which would have waived. So that would answer Judge Collins' question. If it never been issued, you, your fallback would say is the officer had consent to go in. Would that be your fallback position? In this case, that would be one of the fallback positions. I think that there, but again, the state doesn't concede that there wasn't a warrant. We have a discrepancy. We have inconsistent testimony. We have inconsistent, uh, not testimony, but inconsistent um, evidence in this case that was presented as far as the existence of the warrant, again, so, on a collateral issue. So, quick question. So, yes, you made a, a point that the defendant 
didn't respond to three knocks and announce. So what if he had responded, opened the door, the officers say, we're here to execute a search warrant, and he said, show me the warrant or I'm not letting you in. Do you think that at that point, then he could have been arrested for resisting, for resisting the officers entering into the home if they didn't have the warrant? I think in that case, in that scenario, I think that there would be argument that he could have um, requested a warrant and then revoked any consent. Because the statute requires that the warrant be on site and be read to the person being searched, right? It, it does, Your Honor, but in this case, the officers weren't presented with the ability to be able to do that because he did not come to the door and present himself to the officers or give them the opportunity to be able to give him a warrant. Instead, they were presented with an individual who they came upon instant to the search. But they didn't have a warrant in their hand at all at that point, did they? The officers that are that went into his room did not, but their understanding was that their commanding officer and the case agent on the case, Detective Orr, did. And so they understood there was a warrant and they were acting within the scope of their duty um, and following orders in doing so. Unfortunately, they were not presented with the ability to be able to uh, present a warrant, even if they had had one on themselves at that moment, to the individual because instead of having a more cordial, um, greeting at the door or even a, uh, a more confrontational greeting at the door, uh, they weren't even given that opportunity. Instead, while they were conducting a search in accordance with a, the usual procedure of conducting a search in accordance with the search warrant, they happened upon him and then were presented with this individual hiding under a bed. And He was hiding under the covers in his bed, right? Did the officer take the covers off and he had his hands on his face and would it roll over into his stomach and then... Uh, they got him on his stomach against his will, and then when he reached, allegedly reached under the bed, then they charged him with resist? Yes, Your Honor. It is the resisting part that uh, was in play there once he reached under the bed, especially. And that's when, again, this um, gets to another point that I wanted to make as well, which is that the defense says that the uh, individual was uh, has a right to resist under the law, uh, citing State v. Sparrow. Um, what they failed to acknowledge or even um, what wasn't even presented at trial was the mental state of the individual, in this case the defendant, as far as uh, understanding that he had a right to resist or that this was an unlawful search or seizure in this case. So whose burden is this? Again, it seems like you keep placing the burden on the defendant here to show his mental state. Is that what you're suggesting? As far as the defense, it would be on the defendant to be able to present that, it would be my argument. And then... If you look even at the case of State v. Sparrow, the court went back and looked at the mental state of the defendant in that case who was charged with resisting, and they overturned her charge because they found that instead of her uh, mental state or intent being to resist an officer, it actually had to do with the her being offended over the officer arresting her husband in that case. So they examined the intent there, and it was overturned based on the defendant's uh, meeting their burden in that case there. So I would argue that the same should be applied in the opposite in this case, in which the defendant should have the burden if they want the defense to be able to um, show that the they understood that they were in a position to resist, that they had the right to resist. But here, the testimony was that the uh, defendant here understood that all the officers were the authority in charge, uh, I believe was the quote from the the transcript that you have about four minutes left so I yes, want to give you a little bit of a, a, a notice but uh, and maybe that dovetails a little bit into 
the defendant wanted the jury to see the warrant. They wanted to see the time on the warrant, the time on the citation. It speaks for itself. The trial judge decided not to let them see the warrant, the fact that it had been issued at 214 and executed at 219. And I've raised a scenario that, you know, if I'd have been a juror, I would say, man, that house must be really close to the courthouse for them to get there in five minutes. But, but that would come in under the judge's discretion. I think counsel basically admitted that that's a discretionary ruling by the trial court. What about the jury instructions? So and the right to resist and the others that he raised too. So as far as the, the jury instructions, so uh, I would argue that under State v. Rose, um, the trial court only needs to uh, give a requested instruction which is supported by the evidence. Here the jury instructions that the um, defendant has requested, uh, there wasn't sufficient evidence presented for them to be able to uh, get that far as far as the uh, jury instructions which was requested uh, to be presented in the first place anyway. Um, the what was missing from his right to have an, obstruct, uh, an instruction on a right to resist? As far as the instruction for the right to resist, the evidence that was missing there was, one, I would say his mental state was not presented. There was no evidence. In fact, we had evidence in the opposite where he acknowledged that he understood that the officers were there in their official capacity. He understood that they were there and they were the authority over the situation. Um, and there's no evidence that he understood or believed that this was an unlawful uh, search at the time in which he conducted himself in that manner and where he reached under the bed to try and reach for a bat, um, you know, to resist. So, Well, didn't he testify that he stayed in the bed because he knew that the officers were there and he didn't want to be shot by mistake? He did say that, Your Honor, and so there is that which I, I would say... <laughs> um, doesn't go towards the issue of the the mental state needed for resisting. Instead, it goes toward just his mental state of just being concerned for his own well-being. It, it, it's a different scenario. I, I'm not sure it, it applies as squarely here in this case as far as what evidence he did present. I would also argue that it just doesn't meet the burden that he would need to be able to get the jury instruction that he wanted in that case. You have about a minute left. Yes, Your Honor. Um, with that, um, I, as far as the, the remaining jury instructions, uh, I would say State v. Rose is controlling on those issues that the um, trial court, uh, again, would only need to consider um, jury instructions where there's evidence presented um, to be able to support a jury instruction. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Rebuttal? Thank you, Your Honors. I'd like to raise a few different issues on rebuttal. Um, first, I would like to note that the state has the burden to show that the officers were acting lawfully. That burden just was not met in this case. Uh, the second point I'd like to, um, to discuss is the other duties that the uh, state mentioned. Um, as to those duties, um, this is at odds with the duty alleged in both the citation and jury instruction, as um, you correctly noted. Both state a solitary duty, and that solitary duty was, and I quote, serving a search warrant on 110 Warlick Road. The warrant did not exist. There was no warrant here. Next, I'd like to discuss the claims regarding mental state and uh, state v. Sparrow. 
As to the mental state, um, defendant's mental state was not uh, a, a part of the analysis of element three here. Uh, element three is in regards to whether the officers were acting lawfully um, in discharging or attempting to discharge their duties. That has nothing to do with defendant's mental state. The state also uh, misstated uh, the facts of State v. Sparrow um, in saying that the resisting arrest was in response to um, officers acting improperly. Um, there were two different defendants in State v. Sparrow. The second defendant, yes, that was true. The first defendant was charged with resisting arrest after he actively uh, tried to stop officers from serving an order. Um, next, I'd, I'd like to discuss standing very quickly. Um, Mr. Peacock referred to the other person living, in, living at the house as his roommate. Um, he referred to the bedroom that he was beaten in as his bedroom. Um, the prosecutor referred to the house as, quote, the house you were staying at. And Mr. Peacock stayed at uh, Warlick Road, and we have testimony on this, consistently for four months and had been living on and off, uh, there on and off for the past couple of years. That's a resident. Finally, I'd like to very quickly um, discuss the facts that uh, the state is alleging were resisting arrest. The group of police officers broke in without a warrant. They found Mr. Peacock curled up in his bed with his hands up and by his face. That's um, the up and by his face. That's testimony by Deputy Staggs. Mr. Peacock himself testifies that his hands were up and outside of the, um, outside of the bed sheets throughout the entire time. The officers told Mr. Peacock to roll over. He testified that he didn't understand uh, those commands and kept his hands up above his head because he didn't want to be shot and he didn't know what was going on. In response, the officers threw him off the bed, hit him across the head as a form of quote-unquote pain compliance um, that led to him later having to seek care from EMS and handcuffed him. They then charged him with resisting arrest and no other crime due to his alleged failure to follow instructions. And that finally brings me into my conclusion. The officers acted unlawfully by entering the residence without a warrant and by failing to follow any of the procedures set forth in NCGS 15A-252. As such, they did not meet the burden of element three of the resisting an officer statute, either by the state Supreme Court's objective test or by the trial court's subjective reasonableness test. Further, the trial court erred repeatedly in its instructions to the jury. Based on the reasons set forth in this argument and the briefs, Mr. Peacock's conviction should be overturned. I have a question. Um, yes, sir. Had the officers or an officer received consent an hour earlier? Let's compress the time between when the consent, forget the warrant, and let's just look at the consent. If, if they had gotten consent from the homeowner an hour earlier and the identical facts had happened, would we have a different result from your argument? I would say no. The consent was still in regards to a different incident at a different time. But um, it was consent to search. Uh, it was consent to search in relation to a specific incident at a specific time. Um, I would say first, as you mentioned, you know that hypothetical was not in play here. It was on a different day. If that hypothetical were to be in play, the same, um, same result would still arise. Um, the officers had an, would have had an opportunity to search in relation to a specific incident. They chose not to. They left. They can't come back later in relation to a completely different incident and uh, demand to have entry without a warrant. So even under the same facts that we have, if that consent, even for a different purpose, had been issued three hours earlier, same day, 
and the identical facts that happened, would that, would that support the state's argument? Your Honor, I would have to do uh, a more thorough analysis of the law in order to have a good answer to that. Um, however, I would say that given the facts of this case, um, the consent does not come into play. Okay, and what would you have the court do? Um, I would have the court overturn Mr. Peacock's conviction. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Um, the case is, thank you for your arguments. The case is submitted.